This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. From the campus of the Wharton School in San Francisco, this is Bay Area Ventures on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here are Doug Collum and Irene Yen. Welcome to Bay Area Ventures on Sirius XM's Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. We are broadcasting live from the campus of Wharton San Francisco on the Embarcadero here in downtown San Francisco, right next door to Silicon Valley. I'm your host, Irina Yen. I'm the director of Penn Wharton Entrepreneurship here at Wharton San Francisco. And my co-host, Doug Collum, uh, could not join us this evening, but will be with us again uh, on our next show. So coming up in our first hour of today's show, I'll be speaking with Leslie Berlin, who is a project historian for the Silicon Valley Archives at Stanford University. She has a new book out titled Troublemakers, Silicon Valley's Coming of Age, which we're excited to learn more about uh, in just a few minutes. Then joining me in our second hour will be Steve Polsky, the founder and CEO of Juvo, a financial tech startup with the goal of bringing financial inclusion to emerging markets. For those of you just tuning in, um, Bay Area Ventures is all about the world of entrepreneurship. Um, startups and venture capital here in the San Francisco Bay Area. And our show broadcasts live every Monday at 4 p.m. Pacific. That's 7 p.m. Eastern, conveniently, during the uh, commute time. Uh, And it does re-air again throughout the week. Um, Each week, we're joined by entrepreneurs, investors, um, and thought leaders from the Bay Area business community who are kind enough to join us, talk, and share their stories and their insights and opinions on a wide range of issues, trends, and developments that are going on here in the Bay Area technology community. Um, And as a reminder, um, this is a talk show, so if you have a question for our guests coming up, you can reach us at 844-WHARTON. That's 844-942-7866. So... As I mentioned earlier, we're joined now by our first guest, Leslie Berlin. Leslie is a project historian for the Silicon Valley Archives at Stanford. Uh, She's been a fellow at the Center for Advanced Studies at um, the Behavioral Sciences. She served on the advisory committee to the Lemelson Center for the Study of Invention and Innovation at the Smithsonian's National Museum of American History. And her new book, Troublemakers, which we'll be talking about tonight, uh, explores how Silicon Valley during the 1970s set the stage for our modern high-tech world. Leslie, welcome to the show. Thanks. I'm so glad to be here. That's a mouthful. You've seen a lot and done a lot. We're so excited to learn more about your story and your book. So the headline of our discussion is a new book you've just published, Troublemakers, Silicon Valley's Coming of Age. And we'll get back to it a little bit more. Um, but can you tell us just in a nutshell for our listeners tuning in what the um, book is about? And we will come back to this and dive a little deeper. Yeah, the book is about this remarkable period of time uh, between the late 1960s and through the 1970s when five major industries were all born within 35 miles of each other. Venture capital, advanced venture capital, video games, personal computing, mm-hmm. the inter, the first ARPANET transmission came in, biotechnology. It just a, all of these different industries born at once, and it's just fascinating to watch it happen. Right, and so interesting too because like, the seeds of what we see today, and telling the story to see that um, trajectory, if you will, during that time must have been it's it's an amazing story to read about and to to hear more about. Um, Our listeners would also love to um, know a little bit about you. Um, Oftentimes we have entrepreneurs and, you know, writing a book is no small feat. Um, We'd love for you, if you would, share your story about about you and your background as as an author and a historian of the tech sector here in the Bay Area. Yeah, well, you know, I've always thought that technology is underappreciated as part of American history. Mm -hmm. I think from the beginning, technology has played such an important role. And so when I came out to Stanford to study, uh, basically it was just going to be American history, mm-hmm. that little itch of mine started really acting up as I looked around where Stanford is and realized, my gosh, this is the place to study the history of technology as it's unfolding now. Mm-hmm. And that, that became my dissertation and then my first book. And now I have moved far from the academic way of writing. Um, <laughs> I'm very interested in the stories of the Valley. All right. What What about, so when you came to Stanford, you were saying you came here for school for your PhD. 
and you're in this environment, which and it sounds like it was just palpable. Like you're seeing what was going. What year was this when you came out here? 1993. So it wasn't even really on a lot of people's radars. Right. So it was on the cusp, but yet you were. I mean, at Stanford, it was like the focal point of a lot going on. And I'm sure you've. I mean, so what inspires you? Were there was there an interaction specifically, or just being at Stanford and being part of that ecosystem and that environment that that drew you in, or that kind of spark something for you? I mean, it was very specific. I took a class on the history of Silicon Valley Mm -hmm. and I just was entranced at the intersection of people and ideas and money and technology. Mm -hmm. And at that point, Silicon Valley had only really been written about by journalists. Mm -hmm. And I had this desire to take kind of a a longer view and try to think about the valley in the context of these sort of broader questions. That's and in 1993, I'm just trying to put that in context. I mean, technology as we know it. I mean, what was going on then? Like, what companies? I mean, certainly in the early days, as you talk about in your book, with you know Fairchild and even folks before then, as they started to come in and settle. Yeah, in the valley in the 1970s. But in 1993, can you help set the stage so that our listeners get a an idea of okay, what was going on there that made it so interesting to look back to understand what was what was happening then and about to take off. Yeah, well, I mean, it's funny because we didn't really know what was about right. to take off, right? Mm-hmm. We're we're still a ways away from even the Netscape IPO, and so this is this is the era where Cisco and Sun Microsystems, mm-hmm. Silicon Graphics. I mean, these companies are the big leaders of of the Valley at the time, and. What grabbed me about it? I think I think it was the first time, because I went to school on the East Coast, um, it was the first time I'd been in a place where the history makers were right there, and you could just talk to them. You know? <laughs> and that was, that was really exciting to me, and I think it really speaks to what has been an important part of Silicon Valley's history for a long time, which is the openness. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, people famously know about Steve Jobs calling Bill Hewlett when he was just a kid mm-hmm. and asking you know, for some equipment. And that's, that was the sort of thing that even in the 90s was still happening quite easily. You could just pick up the phone. I mean, I literally... I think I sent an email to Andy Grove wow. and, and he wrote me back. Wow. And is that when you started, did you start writing your book or thinking about this? It sounded like you had that spark after you took the class and this is in the, in the nineties and this, you know, there's so much more of the story and another generation of technology that had unfolded since. So has it been since 93 that you've been thinking about this and wanting to tell the story or how is that, how is that process for you? Yeah. So there's one book in between. Mm -hmm. Um, So my first book was a biography of Bob Noyce, Mm -hmm. uh, who was a co-founder of Fairchild Semiconductor, which was the first successful silicon company in Silicon Valley. Then he went on to co-found Intel. He also co-invented the microchip Mm -hmm. and he was a very important mentor to Steve Jobs. Mm -hmm. And so he was my first book. This book, I really wanted, even though Noyce absolutely deserved his own biography, just a standalone, he was a remarkable man. Fairchild itself is historic in the Valley in general. Absolutely. Absolutely. And Intel is is nothing to sniff at either. Um, (laughs) But in this case, I really, I wanted to pull the story out, Mm -hmm. um, both away from a single industry and away from a single individual. Uh, Because I really believe that innovation is a team sport. And the analogy that I like to use is of a baseball game, you know, a perfect game. And so everyone who watched the game knows that the first baseman has killed himself to step on the bag. and, And the outfielders making these incredible catches and the catchers saying, you know, calling the perfect pitch right. for e- everyone so who comes dramatic <laughs> exactly but all that goes in the record book is that the pitcher threw a perfect game mm-hmm. and that is I, I wanted to move away from that to tell the story of all different people on these teams right and how did you choose them? Because there's so many, to your point, like you were mentioning Fairchild. I mean, the founder himself is so interesting, Intel. And in, the, in, the, in your book, you mentioned, like, you focus on five specific kind of stories, if you will, of, of folks that represent iconic companies and iconic personalities. How did you, how are you able to distill it to choose, like, okay, these five yeah. or these folks? Because it's, like, to your point, there's so many stories. There are. And, I mean, it, it, you know, it was... Maybe a, that's another book. That's it, your next one. <laughs> it was an abundance <laughs> of riches, to be sure. And I... I I had three criteria. The criteria were that the person had 
to be a great story. Mm-hmm. This is complicated technology. I was going to be talking about lots of different things, right. and I needed it to be a just a good old once upon a time kind of story that mm-hmm. people wanted to follow through to the end. The second criteria was I really wanted people who were not household names Mm -hmm. for exactly the reason that I was just talking about. I opened the book talking about a party that I went to where one of the people in attendance was the COO of a company with a a superstar CEO. And that COO just sang this little song that went, I did all the work, he got all the credit. And he just literally, that was (laughs) those were the words to the song. And I, so I wanted them to not be as well known. And, and the third criteria was that they had to do something important or teach us something important Mm. about the Valley. That's really interesting. Yeah. Like the story of, um, what they all taught us and what was left and have we learned from that now? That's really interesting. What I also, what I I thought was really interesting was a mix of characters, not just across industry, whether it's Genentech or the, you know, um, the apples, the unsung heroes from Apple, like Mark, you were mentioning, um, was also like the the gender distribution. Also, I mean, I know that's a, a discussion that we have now today in the Valley, where there's not much diversity. But then, if that was, um, I guess, uh, like a representative sample, if you will, of what was going on, it didn't seem like that was as as big an issue as it is now, but maybe it was and we just don't know. Yeah, <laughs> I don't really know how to think about yeah, that. Yeah, I mean, you don't know how to think about it because it's not a straightforward issue. Yeah. So there were some fields, like when I did the biotech mm-hmm. chapters, uh, there were a lot of women in positions of responsibility and authority in biology. I mean, that was a surprise to me. There, there really were. Um, and in all of these companies, there were women programmers, there were women video game oh. developers, they were there. Um they were few enough that I could give you their names, but right. but they were there. Um, and so the two women who I chose to profile, uh, one is Sandy Kurtzig. Mm-hmm. And Sandy was the CEO of a company called Ask. Right. Ask was a software company. Um, and I was interested in that story uh, largely because it was a software story. Silicon Valley at this time was all about hardware. It was about chips right, and yeah. computers and advanced phone systems and disk drives. It was not about software at all. I was interested in Sandy's story trying to get people to understand what software is and to give her money to start right, a company. Right. <laughs> um, and, and she was a double outsider because she was a woman and she was selling software. Mm-hmm. And she says that people thought she was selling lingerie when she said she sold wow. software. And Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, it was really interesting. And another person who I write about is a woman named Fawn Alvarez. Mm-hmm. So Fawn, when the book opens, is 12 years old and picking plums in the orchards that were all over the bucolic hamlet where she lived, which is Cupertino, California. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and um, she ended up... Uh, after high school, going straight to work on a manufacturing line, which is something that people really don't know today, that Silicon Valley had factories. Right. And uh, I really wanted that story to come out. And Fawn's story is remarkable in part because she managed to make the leap from manufacturing into management and administration. She ended up being effectively the chief of staff to the president of IBM Rome. She worked for a company called Rome, which right. I think is probably familiar to a number of your listeners, which was acquired by IBM. And so, again, great stories, unknown people, important lessons. Definitely. And even in the case of Sandy, I mean, she recently is in Volokanandi, which is kind of in a similar space she was mm-hmm. back then and still an entrepreneur and still engaged. And still, to your point earlier, she's still here. Somebody to talk about where her story is today as it continues to unfold. Yeah. And that, I mean, that's just incredibly exciting. I mean, as a historian, I'm I'm lagging today by about 30 years pretty regularly. <laughs> and I think that's actually important for historical distance. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I think that because I do hang back, mm-hmm. um, first of all, there are materials available that wouldn't have immediately been available because people have either collected them or given them to Stanford or somehow made them available. But secondly, I mean, it was Steve Jobs who said you can only connect the dots by looking back. You right. can't connect them you know, as you move right. forward. And I really feel like that's a big part of what I'm doing. I don't know that I could have written this book much sooner than I did because I oh, needed to be able to say, okay, here we go. We're looking at these five industries, at these six individuals. 
where do they intersect? Where are the sort of points of overlap? Because those are really part of the secret of Silicon Valley's success. It's almost like the stories need to continue to ripen, if you will. Like there's more to unfold before you can tell a story. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Wow. So, so of the industries, what has been, what have you seen in the past, like with the, as a historian looking back, sometimes in history, we look at the back to inform the present or future. What similarities in terms of patterns or um, just in general, what are some interesting things that you kind of take away from the past as you look at what's going on today? Are there similarities? Are there differences? I mean, it's pretty broad, but I mean, whether companies starting up those kind of patterns or composition of the companies, you know, your story about Fawn and how she started on the line and rose up. I mean, do you still see that happening today? Uh, no, you don't. <laughs> um, there, there are kind of jobs that Fawn started with and that her mother had also as well are, um, they don't exist anymore. Mm -hmm. Really high paying middle-class jobs, um, for people who don't have a college education. Those don't exist in Silicon Valley. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, Fawn, uh, they got all of the same benefits on the manufacturing line as everyone else in the company. It, you know, that way it was a very different time. Mm -hmm. uh, when I think about what are some of the important consistencies. I mean, I think that I would point to two secrets of Silicon Valley that I think mm -hmm. not uh, don't get enough attention. Mm -hmm. The first is uh, what Steve Jobs called passing the baton. Mm -hmm. He talked about how when he was fired from Apple in 1985, the first thing he did was turn around and call David Packard and Robert Noyce mm -hmm. and say and apologize for what he called wow. dropping the baton. He had this notion wow. of a baton being passed from one generation to the next to the next. And he never talked about it, but he passed the baton forward as well. He was an important mentor to Mark Zuckerberg, to wow. the founders of Google. Mm -hmm. uh, he never really talked about that. And so I think that very often people have the sense they just want to go it alone and you know ignore what came before. And I'd say people do that at their own peril. I mean, one of the great advantages that Silicon Valley has is this world of people who've done this before. Right. It wasn't exactly the same, but there's a lot to learn there. And the second piece, um, oh, and I, you know what else I'd say about that is that, you know, we need more than one baton being yes. passed. And I really hope that this book can, can serve as a bit of a baton, mm -hmm. you know, to people Absolutely. Um, as who are trying to understand, well, how did this happen before? And the second thing that I would really point to is the importance of immigrants to the Valley. Mm-hmm. I think that, you know, when this book opens, the most of the immigrants to the valley are coming from other parts of the United States. But even then, you had about twice the population of the valley was born in another country than if you look at the U.S. as a whole. Right now, we're at about two-thirds of the people working in science and tech uh, in the valley between the ages of 25 and 44. Two-thirds of those people were born outside of the United States. Wow. More than half of the unicorn companies valued at a billion dollars or more uh, privately held, more than half of those companies have a founder or co-founder born outside of the United States. So this is something we have to keep this kind of constant refresh right. of, of new minds and different experiences coming into the valley. That's really interesting given the climate of immigrants and that discussion today and how to your point, you're passing the baton and telling the story. It's just this package of information. That's your baton that you're passing on to others. And for us to, to think about that and look at that, I mean, has, when you say two thirds of, um, of the company of the Valley is comprised of immigrants from technology comes that today, or is that back in the past? That's today. That's today. Actually, the number I've seen is uh, for women mm -hmm. working in tech between the ages of 25 and 44, 76%. Wow were born outside of the United States. And how has that changed over the years as a historian looking back and looking at that number today? Has that grown and is it flattening or what do you... I don't know if it's flattening. It has grown, mm -hmm. uh, but always uh, we've been far ahead of the country as a whole yeah. in the sort of embrace of other perspectives and of welcoming people from all over the world. I mean, I think this goes back to that point about openness. Mm -hmm. And it's honestly part of what makes a lot of the stories about women in tech and how um, we've been excluded right. really hard for me to understand because this is a place that hasn't traditionally just talked the talk about being open. Mm -hmm. It's walk the walk. So um, that is a legitimate question I have. I, I don't quite understand that gap. Mm -hmm. 
For those of you just joining us, we're speaking with Leslie Berlin, the project historian for the Silicon Valley Archives at Stanford and author of the book Troublemakers, Silicon Valley's Coming of Age. And we're just talking about um, how immigrants comprise a lot of the the talent here um, and the, also the notion of passing the baton and how this book, I think, is uh, is a symbolic. It's not just symbolic. It's actually passing the baton with all this information. We're just talking about... Um, you know, the, the discussion about women and diversity or lack thereof, you know, that discussion happening today. And, you know, what happened? What happened between knowing what we know in the past, that there were a lot of female um, entrepreneurs in biotech, there were engineers, um, maybe it was the 60s, 70s, a time frame where in general as a culture was this, um, there's a lot going on, you know, externally. Um, I, what happened? Like, what's going on? I mean, maybe it's just that's the next story to figure out. Like, how did that shift, or what is shifting or shifted? Where it doesn't, it's hard to even imagine that once was. Well, you know, I mean, I want to be careful not to paint too rosy a picture. Um, right. So uh, it was, I believe, 1974 mm-hmm. before a woman could just automatically apply even for a credit card without her husband's permission. It was 1980 before the EOC recognized sexual harassment in the workplace. And so I think that um, it's interesting because while on the inside, these women were largely treated as peers, you know, just another designer. Um, Or Sandy is always very careful to say that part of the reason she could do what she could do is she was the boss. And so she didn't have to worry about this. But at the same time, she did. I mean, there she, people thought that she was a booth babe at, at industry conferences. Wow. And I mean, if you look at Atari, I mean, they have they had a company newsletter in which um, one employee published a story about, I mean, that was absolutely pornographic about a, a breastologist and, and that ended with, a, a, you know, women being sucked into machines and dying. And I mean, it was just, and that was a company newsletter. Right. So I think that part of what is uh, important to understand is that all of this existed. Right. And at the same time, it was so much a part of the air that everyone breathed that I think that even the women themselves often just... You know, they would say to me, because I heard stories that are not in this book, um, that, that they would say, oh, that wasn't discrimination. That guy was just a jerk. Right. <laughs> <You know? laughs> um, so it was just, you know, part of the air people breathed. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's something that's actually made the book really interesting to me as I was writing it is that even though I live here now and I've lived here for so long, the culture was just so different. I mean, this is the, I mean, the Vietnam War, the book right. opens with uh, the protests in Berkeley um, around People's Park, where you ended up with a protester dead. And at Stanford, these these clashes with police and vehicles being overturned and wow. set on fire and, you know, the, all sorts of curfews being set in the city of Berkeley, because Berkeley is a part of this story. Right. And I think that, um, the the counterculture kind of hippie elements of the valley were were really important one again for fostering this sense of sort of being outsiders and and thinking beyond the establishment rules and on a more practical level these people were people who had they not been so against the war, very likely would have gone to work for defense contractors right. or um, perhaps even for the Department of Defense because a lot of them were graphics experts. Right. Um, and instead, they ended up at places like Atari. Wow, so what a what a contrast <laughs> and changing that. That's so interesting. I mean, I'm thinking about it as you talk and just processing that. It's You're right, it's not a rosy picture for women or in general, but there's a context of what was going on that on the one hand fueled all this innovation and what we refer to now as disruption. Um, And on the other hand, we would look back and think like, that's a little crazy, that would never happen today. Uh, although we're finding out that it is happening today and it, there's a lot of change still well, more to come. And I think something that's important is that um, it's in part because women do have so much more authority and, of course, legal rights. Let's not just put it on the cult- level of culture right. that this stuff is not okay. You know, right. I mean, it is it is coming to the fore. I mean, I'd be quick to point out that we haven't heard a lot from um say, the people who are cleaning these offices um, who are talking about sexual discrimination. It's the women who have education and options who are able to kind of have the freedom to raise these issues. Right. 
Um, you know, I was also thinking about this idea that's making me think of mentorship and passing the idea of passing the baton. And one of the secrets of Silicon Valley, as you as you mentioned, I wonder, um, you know, as you mentioned, Steve Jobs mentored. Maybe we don't know that much about. I had not heard that before with Zuckerberg uh, and the founders of Google. Also, I wonder to what extent that's happening amongst women mentoring other women and in the spirit of passing the baton. Oh, I think that happens a lot, and it also happens inside specific immigrant communities. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in a lot of alumni networks from you know Case or other sort of IT, I, you know, the the top schools right. from all over the world, or um, Things like the immigrant entrepreneurs, you know, Thai. These right. these are things. Right. These are places where this sort of thing is happening, and I think that um, I'm glad you brought up jobs again and mentorship because one of the most exciting stories for me was the story of Mike Markla, right. who um, everyone knows about the two Steves in the garage in 1976, but. Uh, Mike Markla owned a third of Apple with mm-hmm. Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak. And Mike was someone who had retired from Intel at the age of 34 wow. and uh, decided that he wanted to hold the equivalent of office hours for young entrepreneurs. And through his good friend, Don Valentine, who's mm-hmm. the founder of Sequoia Capital, got connected up with the two Steves in the garage. And it was Markla who really captured that genius in that garage and turned it, it turned Apple into the youngest company ever to hit the Fortune 500. Because if you think about it, Steve Jobs was 21. Right. He had no business experience. I mean, he had 17 months of business experience as a tech for Atari. Steve Wozniak wasn't interested in being an entrepreneur. He would have been happy to be an engineer at an HP engineer, yeah. for life. And it was Markla who pulled in the contacts he had from the microchip industry when you look at um, Apple at its IPO, you'll see that the the president, the VP of marketing, the VP of manufacturing, their VP of HR, their CFO, their most of their major investors, all of them were people who Markla had brought in through his chip connections. And that is exactly what I'm talking about when I talk about leaning on the people who came before you. Essentially, I think about that leading on the people came before you and also the idea, which is something we see today in this generation of technology companies, if the founders are the young, say, 20-something-year-olds with, you know, it's a year and a half of experience building their company as a founder, but bringing in this established business person like the, um, what do I say, like the gray hairs, if you will, you know, like the grown-ups, the grown-ups, right, right, the grown-ups coming in to, to help exactly with that, framing it as a business and putting a little um, like I don't know if discipline is the right word, but a business process, the connections, and that sort of thing to help it grow, f- grow a little bit more. Like with um, Eric Schmidt at Google, with um, Larry and Sergey, etc. I mean, th- to what extent do you see that pattern continuing? Because when we hear these stories, the story behind the headlines, it seems that that's still happening mm-hmm. today. I think it. I think it often does happen mm-hmm. once a company is off the ground. I think that where it could happen more is before. The company gets going. Um, And you mentioned Eric Schmidt. And I mean, Eric, you know, this is something that I don't know how many people know about him. He was at Xerox Park. And Mm -hmm. so one of the people I write about uh, is a guy named Bob Taylor, who uh, was very important to Eric Schmidt. And um, Bob Taylor was the person who convinced the Department of Defense to launch the ARPANET that became the internet. And then for his second act, he ran the computer science lab at Xerox Park, which is the, the lab that Steve Jobs famously visited and saw for the first time a graphical user interface and a mouse and WYSIWYG, you know, what you see is what you get, right. and uh, printers and email servers. His head, and, like, blew up. <laughs> and, and that was all under Bob Taylor. Wow. And Taylor, uh, just for the record, had a master's degree in psychology. He he was running a, a computer science lab so advanced that wow. the president of MIT worried that there weren't going to be enough uh, top-notch computer scientists to teach in the universities because they were all working for Bob Taylor. And that's wow. a really interesting thing is that, you know, sometimes the person you need to kind of create, you know, foster creativity and genius is does not always have to be exactly the same as the people who are are doing the work. Someone described Taylor to me as a concert pianist without fingers. Oh, wow. You know, he couldn't play it himself, but he, he could hear the music and he could help find, he could find the people who knew how to play it. Wow, that's an incredible story. Um, and we're going to continue this conversation with to go on a brief break. 
Um, I'm Irina Yen, and my guest this hour is Leslie Berlin, the project historian for Silicon Valley Archives at Stanford. Please stay with us as we continue our conversation. You're listening to Bay Area Ventures on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM 111. Welcome back to Bay Area Ventures on Sirius XM's Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Irina Yen, and my guest this hour is Leslie Berlin, the project historian for the Silicon Valley Archives at Stanford University and author of the book Troublemakers, Silicon Valley's Coming of Age. And we left, when we left off before the break, we're just starting to talk a little bit more about um, just diving in a little bit more about the um, idea of passing the baton and sharing that knowledge of the history of Silicon Valley into the future and also looking at companies and how um, you know, what are some similarities that we've seen from the past that we're seeing again in the future uh, or today? Um, one of the things I was thinking about was, you know, we talked about this earlier. There's so many luminaries, and how did you, did, how did you identify the luminaries that you did? And you mentioned there were criteria, um, which I thought was interesting. Was there also um, a central theme that you were trying to draw out from those stories that you thought was important for us as a reader and also for folks who are learning about his, you know, Silicon Valley today, it was important to you that that story came out, some central themes? Yeah, I, I think that um, I wasn't actively looking, um, you know, for people who, who taught a certain theme. But when I went at the end of the book and looked back and said, well, what did these people have in common with each other? Uh, they were, and this is an unusual combination, I think, they were persistent. Mm-hmm. And they were audacious. And I think that very often people who are audacious are kind of one-hit wonders. They sort of have this idea <laughs> one time and then very often they don't necessarily have to follow through on it. Right. And these people all did, mm-hmm. which I think is a really important lesson mm-hmm. uh, for today's entrepreneurs. And um, I think that something that has really lately been on my mind um, And it doesn't, I wouldn't say it applies to everyone in this book, but almost everyone Mm -hmm. in this book. Uh, There was a genuine humility at play. Mm -hmm. And I think um, that's all great uh, from a moral perspective, but that's actually not why I think it's important to appreciate. Um, I think that what humility implies is understanding that it's your idea and your ability to execute that are what is going to make or break your success and especially as a company and I think that right now sometimes people are so focused on the trappings of being a disruptor you know um, that sort of brashness kind of bull in a china shop kind Mm -hmm. of attitude that that aspect has been lost I would say that none of these people were disruptors for the sake of disruption. I mean, I call them troublemakers, but they didn't set out to make trouble. They set out almost to a person to try to build something that they, that it turned out they couldn't build or do something that it turned out they couldn't do inside the existing structures of the time. And so they had to find a different way to do it. And as soon as you are sort of pushing beyond the established barriers, you're by definition making trouble for right. everyone around <laughs> you. Um, but that wasn't their goal. And they were they were making trouble with a purpose that was just sort of incidental to doing what they needed to accomplish. And I worry sometimes that that um, bad boy founder kind of concept has gotten so much hype right. that we've forgotten that that First of all, I don't think it's in any way obligatory. As a matter of fact, right. I actually think it could be counterproductive. But secondly, to the extent that people have had success with it, it has been a means to an end. And again, you might ask if they would have had even more success. If they hadn't, <laughs> if, if they, they took hadn't. a different approach. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, maybe confusing the brazenness with the audacity that you yeah. talked about. The audacity is something different. Mm-hmm. Um but yeah, the trappings, that's really interesting because culturally I feel like that's changed. Um, even from w- when I you know, read about the history, but also even the quote Web 1.0 generation when they were still genuinely trying to figure out a, w- a better way and then finding whatever, um, whatever way to get around it as a creative exercise. Like, wow, this is challenging. We don't know. It was so exciting from that perspective versus doing it for the sake of I'm doing it and being brash, as you say. Yeah, yeah. and um, I think that there are 
people who really have that spirit in their hearts like right now Mm -hmm. um that sort of innovative idealistic uh spirit is there for real Mm -hmm. and I think that what has changed now versus then is at the time that I'm writing about and even I would say up till the 2000s maybe not quite that late but pretty pretty late Mm -hmm. people it, it was not known in the way it is now that you could make a gazillion dollars in tech tech was not the hot thing to do once you got your mba Mm. or you know people were all getting finance degrees (laughs) they weren't getting engineering degrees to try to to make it rich and i i think that of course some people are making trying to make it rich and that's why they want their engineering degree um but a lot of people have just come to recognize that this is a way to have an impact on the world right. is through um, technology. I think what has changed is just there is so much money mm-hmm. uh, being thrown at people. Such enormous fortunes mm-hmm. have been amassed. And I think that, yeah. you know, we're no longer, people out here don't necessarily see themselves as the outsiders or underdogs anymore. Mm-hmm. And um, that, I think, can be dangerous. We have to be careful not to slip into some sort of smugness or Mm -hmm. complacency um, because the real animating spirit is um, how do we get done what needs to get done? Do you think we're losing that spirit? I mean, there's definitely a shift from to your point about how it was before and now. Um, are we at the are we losing it completely or, or is this just more of a yellow like you know we just have to be careful yeah, yeah. i think i i first of all um again not to paint the past with rose colored glasses there right. were plenty of people who were in it for the money um starting basically after apple and genentech's ipos in right. 1980 there were plenty of people <laughs> yeah, in it for the yeah, money me too, um, me too. yeah exactly yeah. um but no i would say it's it's a little bit like an athlete who's gone a little soft you know and all the all that musculature and all that talent is is still right there it's just kind of buried under some fat <laughs> right right <laughs> i think we're, flex de- those we're, we're, a little bit. we're dealing with a tiny bit of flab mm-hmm. right now um but i'm I'm confident that we, we still have all the prowess underneath it. Yeah, it's interesting also because there are today, I mean, that's true. I believe that there's the smugness that we have to be mindful of that. And there are also companies who are including in their business model this social good aspect mm-hmm. of it, like companies, you know, that like Warby Parker, you know, we make X amount of money, Y percent goes to this. Or, you know, the furniture start saying, okay, if we sell 10 units, then one whole thing will donate, et cetera. I mean, I mean, that, is that a shift? Had that been going on before? Or what do you think about that? I don't think that that, I mean, that certainly wasn't going it was on a luxury the time then, yeah. of, you know, this book. I mean, I think that, uh, you know, Hewlett Packard, which is sort of the granddaddy of Valley companies and also very early on um, had a reputation for being just an incredibly wonderful citizen of right. its communities and its world. It's, you know, it's first... Uh, lesson or first first goal in its what we would call a mission statement <laughs> was to make a profit mm-hmm. so um i think that it, there's nothing wrong with that being obviously the goal of business and i do think um folding these other things in it's an interesting way to go i don't there wasn't a lot of precedent for it um back at this time i think because the work itself was seen as a social good in a lot right. of ways sort yeah. of bringing this power to the people right that we see, yeah, and that some of the companies did today, and now they're doing it just in a different way. Mm. Um, I want to step back, if we may, a little bit just on the writing process, because I think for some folks who read a book, they don't really understand all that goes into it. And as a historian, you must have gone through a lot of material just to distill the characters or the stories that you wanted to tease out. What was the process like in terms of duration? How many years did it take you? You know, you, you mentioned the first class you took was in 1993, I think right. it was. So was it since 1993? And you wrote a book in between, right. which I'm sure is no small feat at all. Right. Um, how, what was the process like for this book? Yeah, so I think of this book as taking about six years. Wow. Um, mm-hmm. Now, that's while I was also working at Stanford and have two kids. Right, right. <laughs> so, that alone. Um, that was a project. So uh, it wasn't, you know, 
heads down 60 hours a week mm-hmm. of um, six years. But no, it's a very involved process. I mean, this book in particular is kind of six books in one because oh, yeah. it tells all of these different stories. So I needed to gain a decent amount of mastery in, you know, fields as unrelated as biotech and, you know, intellectual property right. law and um, fun stuff, then craft yeah. stories around it. You know, oh, I love learning new stuff. So that, mm-hmm. that was, that was fun. Um, but then, yeah, building the stories. And then I ran everything through um, technical review mm-hmm. uh, just because I'm wanted to make, I, to me, it's a great benefit that I'm an outsider. I, it means I stay away from jargon and I'm perfectly right. comfortable asking stupid questions. <laughs> uh, but in the end, I wanted to make sure I had it uh, right. And right. so put it through those technical reviews. Yeah, it took a long time. I mean, every person in this book, with the exception of Bob Swanson, who's the co-founder of Genentech, um, was, and, and is one of the major players in the book, all of the other major players I interviewed, um, wow. usually multiple times, uh, Bob Taylor has since passed away. Uh, so it was a combination of interviews and really important um, are what are called primary source documents, the sort of mm-hmm. papers that were written at the time. Um, you know, Xerox Park luckily had email so early it's amazing there were printouts of emails from like the late 1970s so you're able to watch how these people are actually talking to each other Mm -hmm. that is the stuff that makes for really good and engaging history um so pulling that kind of thing up i talked to about a hundred people total for this book amazing Um, yeah well because you want to you have your main player but as i've just been saying you have everyone around them and you need all of those different perspectives you need to be triangulating especially if you have contradicting versions um and so the book looks really fat um but the last hundred pages are actually notes that anyone could skip (laughs) (laughs) if they wanted um but that's where i really I kind of tried to bury the research bones deep so that you can just read it on the level of story. Right. But then if you want to look at the notes, they'll often say things like, I'm doing the best I can to, you know, and here, here's what the countervailing view looks like wow. and, you know, why I thought that I should go the way I did in the text. How was it to, how did you reach out to these? So did you just, you mentioned with Andy Grove, you sent an email, he emailed back. I mean, mm-hmm. part of the openness of Silicon Valley to interview hundred a hundred people for this book what was that process like to identify the 360 you know and how how was it once you met these iconic figures in our history yeah um well i mean honestly i think having a stanford affiliation was very helpful Mm -hmm. um I think people knew and I hope still know that, you know, my goal here is actually getting the real history out and people appreciate that, particularly people um, who've been the subject of a lot of attention, Mm -hmm. (laughs) really like it when someone's trying hard to get the work done thoroughly, um, which is the advantage of, of not, I know I did, of being able to take six years to write a book like this. Right. right? Um, They were, you know, some people like um, Andy, I talked to for my first book, and he actually made me um, send him some other things I had written before he would talk to me wow. because he wanted. But that's just Andy, you right. know. That was, he just wanted to vet me all the way, right. all the way down to my bones and right. make sure I was okay. But a lot of people, I, I had no one, with one exception, no one I reached out to said no. They were interested in talking. Now, these are people of a certain age, most of them, Mm -hmm. and they are thinking about um, legacy, Mm -hmm. and very often they're retired. Um, Not all of them, of course. I mean, Sandy Kurtz is a great example of someone who's still very active. Um, But this is something that that matters to people. Wow. That's so interesting. I mean, just to sit down with them, to ask them the questions, to secure the interview, that must have been really special to be able to do that to be in the room and living history if you will Mm -hmm. Um, as a historian what was this like for you I mean this is what you do you tell stories you you it's about um, the facts and making sure that we're passing the baton what was this experience for you from that perspective well I think that for me um this is my first time writing a book about people who are alive. Mm. Um, Noyce, Bob Noyce was dead when I wrote um, his biography. So for me, part of the lesson that I needed to learn um, that I, th- I think I, I did well 
was simultaneously letting myself really like these people. Mm-hmm. I liked them. I like them still. <laughs> you know? um, and luckily for me, they've all felt that the book is fair. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, maintaining the kind of objectivity you need to be able to tell these stories, mm-hmm. you know, in uh, from the perspective of someone on the outside for a general readership and, you know, people who want to learn how to, how to do this themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I mean, I think something not just that I think anyone who does interviews, I'm sure you're aware of this too, is, I mean, all of us are the stars of our own movies, right? Mm-hmm. We see everything that happens through our own right. eyes and, and it's filtered through our experience of it. Right. So that's one of the great benefits of being able to interview people is you, you get to hear, this is what it looked like to me. This is what it felt like to me. And then you're able to look at the documents mm-hmm. and see, okay, this is what else was happening. Or sometimes there's a corrective to what you know that right, person right. remembers. And then talking to other people, it does the same thing as well. And sometimes it's a little bit like the blind men and the elephant, you right. know, where you've got to feel a lot of different places before you figure out what you're dealing putting with. Putting together the stories to yeah. share together. Um, if you're just joining us, we're speaking with Leslie Berlin, the project historian for the Silicon Valley Archives at Stanford University and author of the book Troublemakers, Silicon Valley's Coming of Age. And we're talking a little bit about the process of writing the, the book. I wonder if we could also step back a little bit, you know, because many of our listeners are from outside Silicon Valley. So for someone who asks you, what is this thing about Silicon Valley? I mean, how would you respond? Like, what makes it so special that we want to replicate it or people are drawn to it or want to relocate to be here? Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting question. I was just um, speaking in my hometown of Tulsa, Oklahoma, Mm -hmm. and someone there was asking, you know, how do we get a Silicon Valley in Tulsa? Mm -hmm. And um, I was saying, well, I think first you have to figure out what is it that you want out of Silicon Valley, right? <laughs> I mean, we have some real problems in Silicon Valley. Right. It's, it's obscenely expensive to live here. Uh, the middle class has basically been cut out. Mm-hmm. The The traffic is crazy. Right. <laughs> <laughs> the, it's, I mean, there, there are a lot of, a lot of problems, you know, right. and there's, uh, there's a lot of wonderful stuff too. I mean, I really, I never expected to stay here when I graduated Stanford. I thought that I would, I would go home right. and I just, I just loved it, you know? Um, and so when people say, well, what is it? I think it is that sort of openness uh, to new ideas. I mm-hmm. think it is people who love living on the cutting edge. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think it sounds a little silly, but there's a really high concentration of smart people here. Mm-hmm. That's invigorating. It's invigorating to, you know, go to your neighborhood book club. And <laughs> yeah, I remember we were going around my neighborhood book club once and we were supposed to talk about... Um, say something interesting about yourself. And this one person was saying, well, you know, what's interesting about me is, I don't know, I just coordinated this event or whatever. And right. so I said, no, what's interesting about you is that you know how to land a fighter jet on an aircraft carrier. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, holy cow. That's <laughs> right. like, who knows how to do that right. here? Exactly. It's like these random things. You're like, oh, right, right, right. I yeah. can do that. And I mean, that's certainly not limited to the Valley. I mean, I, I think that's something that's really important to understand is that Silicon Valley only exists because of all these other regions right. around the world that are themselves right. centers of innovation. I mean, everything is way too integrated now for us to think of innovation, sort of the geography of innovation as, right. as a zero-sum game and everyone's in Silicon Valley or they're out of the picture. Right. I mean, I think, you know, the interesting question to me is why does why does place matter at all right. at this point, right, mm-hmm. given all of the technology that we've created to seem to make place irrelevant? And I think one of the key, I think I'd point to two things. Uh, The first is one thing Silicon Valley does have at this point is an incredibly finely tuned ecosystem for innovation. Um, Really things move incredibly smoothly and quickly here. Mm -hmm. Um, The second thing that I would point to is how important serendipity is, Mm -hmm. how just running into someone, you know, on the sidewalk or, at, you know, at a kid's sporting event. Right. And I mean, I can't tell you how many companies have gotten started because people who hadn't thought about each other in a long time saw each other in a restaurant, wow. <laughs> you know? Like a uh, soccer sideline at yeah, a kid's game. exactly. You know, and, you know, the real question to me is, how do you take that, which is the great, great strength of Silicon Valley, and make sure that it is open to lots of people, mm-hmm. you know, that it's not just 
okay, the parents who all happen to have kids on the same soccer team. Right. So that's great. But then how do we make sure that it's even bigger than that? And to that point, I mean, is it, you know, there are other enclaves in the country like in Austin and Boston. Seattle. You know, right, Seattle also. What makes... Um, you know, are they starting to create an ecosystem that's that's making it, you know, similar to what Silicon Valley has done, but over 50 plus years, is that starting to happen? And then to your point about the interconnectedness, we can't think of it as an isolated geography, but a, across the whole geography. Yes, absolutely. I mean, one of my favorite um, examples of this is Corning, New York, mm-hmm. up, upstate New right. York, right? Um, well, that is where uh, the Gorilla Glass on your iPhones is from all right from like corning glass from, from corning right. glass right and so this is a place that sort of decided okay what is our what what is it that we are distinctively good at mm-hmm. and how do we parlay that into participation in the 21st century right. economy mm-hmm. i just i think that's a brilliant move and i think that that's what you see um in a lot of places is people saying okay what what is it that we do incredibly well in this location and then you know how do we turn it into something bigger wow as you um what's your sense we've about four minutes um what's your sense about how or whether silicon valley will evolve i mean given all of these different global um dynamics and economic and demographic factors that are so relevant including immigration or immigrants you know being the seed of what has grown in the population even today um, do you think in five or ten years Silicon Valley will be the same or different than how we think about it today? Or how will it be different? What do you yeah. think? If you could look at have you had a crystal ball, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, never ask a historian to predict the, the future. future. <laughs> right, right. I should have prefaced it with that. <laughs> um, I mean, one thing I would say is that if someone asks me um, what is the biggest threat to Silicon Valley, mm-hmm. it's uh, – a hundred percent restricting immigration, particularly if you decide to do the one-two punch of restrict immigration and cut funding for public education. Right. Uh, that is a recipe um, for disaster. Mm. I think we are seeing something different now than we've ever seen before, which is that Silicon Valley, um, which in the past has always been a place that everyone cheered for, sort of yeah. the golden child of the golden state, seems to be in a lot of people's uh, crosshairs right now you know beep list you know (laughs) that's exactly right I do think that's something new I think that's Mm -hmm. something um some of these questions are legitimate to be asking around privacy and you know information and um transparency and concentration of power I think these are questions that need to be asked I think um I don't know how it's it's all going to play out. Right. I I do think it speaks to how important Silicon Valley and its products and you know the tech industry writ large is at this point in our lives. I mean when you yeah. think about the panic you feel when you lose your phone, oh my gosh. you know, yeah. and you think about how intimately tied that is to your your day-to-day life and how much that product knows about you that's right you yeah. know it's un, it, it really speaks to um how important silicon valley has become um, that we are asking these questions and we need to figure out sort of as citizens what is it um that we need for these companies to be and do wow well gosh it's, there's so much more to talk about um unfortunately we're out of time but how can people reach you leslie if they want to read about the book learn about the book and learn more about you so uh, my twitter handle is at Leslie Berlin SV. SV is for Silicon Valley. All right. <laughs> and the website for the book is troublemakersbook.com. Troublemakersbook.com. And you can find that online. Absolutely. Okay, great. Well, thank you so much, Leslie, for joining us tonight. It was my pleasure. We've been speaking this hour with Leslie Berlin. Um, to order a copy of Leslie's book, you can visit www.troublemakersbook.com. And as Leslie mentioned, you can follow her on Twitter at Leslie Berlin SV, SV as in Silicon Valley. Um, just ahead, I'll be joined by Steve Polsky, the founder and CEO of Juvo, a fintech startup seeking financial inclusion for all. I'm Irina Yen, director of Penn Wharton Entrepreneurship at Wharton San Francisco, and you're listening to Bay Area Ventures on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM 111. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.